Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. 50 years ago, a graduate student named Walter Pittman made a discovery that would change the way we see our planet. It was late at night, and Pittman was reviewing charts of ship data that had just come off the computer at what is now Columbia's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. The ship, the El Tannen, had crossed a mid-ocean ridge, part of a 40,000-mile undersea volcanic mountain chain that encircles the Earth. And as the ship crossed the ridge, it was recording the magnetic direction of the rocks in the seafloor below. When Pittman got the data from the El Tannen, he suddenly saw symmetry in lines of the recording, with the mid-ocean ridge as the center point. That recording became known as the El Tannen 19 profile. And that symmetry was the smoking gun that confirmed the theory of seafloor spreading and set up our understanding today of plate tectonics or the constant movement of the Earth's outer layer. At the time, however, these were highly debated theories, and many people believed that the Earth's crust was fixed in place. Bill Ryan, who was also a PhD student at the time and involved in this work, talks about one of those theories. The theory of the ideas of continental drift here in the late 1950s was uh, a no-no at many of the universities. I wrote a term paper at college and got a zero explained to me for even picking the topic. So when we arrived and graduate school here at Columbia, drift was not endorsed. There was a school of thought called eugeosynclinal theory, that mountains just went up and down, basins formed, and they squeezed up into mountains. So Walter and I arrived uh, with backgrounds in physics and engineering, which was helpful because we didn't know enough geology for it to get in the way. Just a little bit of history. The idea that the continents moved first drew attention in 1912, when German geophysicist Alfred Wegener presented his theory of continental drift. He had been curious as to why the east coast of South America appeared to fit perfectly into the west coast of Africa, just like a puzzle. Fossil evidence supported the idea that the continents had somehow been connected at one time. Wegener suggested that the continents, made of less dense rock than the largely volcanic seafloor, drifted through the seafloor, pushing up mountain chains like the Andes as they moved. Few people believed his theory then, but interest in his ideas percolated over the years, particularly among young scientists. And half a century later, new research was setting the stage for a better understanding of the planet. Lamont's Marie Tharp and Bruce Heason had completed the first map of the entire ocean floor, clearly showing the mid-ocean ridges. Scientists had also started to document historic reversals of the Earth's magnetic field, which would become critical to understanding continental drift. When the magnetic field reverses, it leaves a signature in volcanic rock. Each iron particle aligns with the direction of the magnetic field, like a tiny compass. And when lava cools, the iron's direction becomes fixed, creating a kind of time stamp on the Earth. When the Altanen crossed the Pacific Antarctic Ridge in late 1965, it was towing a magnetometer that captured the magnetic reversals in the rocks below, essentially marking time through the millennia. Back on the Lamont campus, that data was fed into a computer to create magnetic profiles of the seafloor. 
Pittman, who had recently returned from several months at sea, spread out the Altana 19 profile on a desk late one night and was stunned by what he saw. It was like being struck by lightning, and uh, it was then just so obvious that continental drift had taken place, and then we had this magic key, this magic magnetic profile, which was perfect, uh, symmetric with respect to the, the, the ridge axis, which is the line along which the separation of the plates was taking place. And uh, that was it. We are able to date it and eventually use it not only as a tool to prove continental drift, but uh, a tool by which we could actually uh, reconstruct the pattern of drift, that is the relative position of the continents, and the actual timing of the separation of the continents. It was a very exciting time, just tremendously exciting to be suddenly thrust from being a technician on a ship to being uh, suddenly sort of a prominent person in the, in the scientific field, you know. It was wonderful. <laughs> the profile showed clear symmetry of the magnetic reversals on either side of the magnetic ridge, suggesting that the volcanic seafloor on either side was being formed at the same time. That profile and a review of many others from mid-ocean ridges around the world confirmed a theory proposed by geologist Harry Hess in 1960 that the seafloor formed from lava at the mid-ocean ridges and spread outward from there. Pittman's profile sparked a series of related discoveries across the Lamont campus. Lynn Sykes, a seismologist who had just finished his PhD at Lamont, remembers how the news got out. The story that I heard was that Pittman, during the night, had worked on this profile of magnetic anomalies in the Southeast Pacific. And he had this result, he made an overlay that showed uh, how symmetric the anomalies were, and finished maybe at 5 a.m. in the morning and pinned it on Neil Updike's door. And he went home to bed. As soon as Updike came in, a little bit later in the morning, he calls up Pittman and says, Pittman, get your behind in here. Sykes was part of the younger generation of researchers who accepted this theory with enthusiasm. But as Pittman tells it, their mentors, both at Columbia and elsewhere, were still resistant to it. It didn't take long, because the data was overwhelming. And we had so much data from the sea, and it was just, we kept churning it out and churning it out and churning it with thousands of miles of data. And we just had, it just, this tremendous storage of data, which we had access to, and just on and on and on, we pulled out magnetic profiles, which showed us that continental drift had taken place. So it was all over in a very short period of time. The argument was done. Sykes, when he saw it, just took off. I mean, I... Thought he was just going to jump right out the window. He galloped down the hill because what he had been doing, he had been using seismic data to look at the first motion along faults. Sykes had been studying the jagged faults along mid-ocean ridges that Canadian geophysicist Tuzo Wilson had defined as transform faults. And Sykes had been using the Altana 19 profile seismic data to explore the first motion along these faults. Sykes's data backed by the new Altanen profile, showed that the seafloor wasn't pushing together, as the offset fault seemed to suggest, but was actually pulling apart. I was fortunate that there was a whole new set of worldwide data, uh, the data being seismic recordings of earthquakes. And so Lamont was one of two places in the world that had a complete set of the film chips uh, that from 125 stations around the world. 
Data collection played a big role in building Lamont's reputation as a leader in ocean and seafloor science. Because of this, the campus had amassed a large computerized library of ocean and seafloor data. Here's Pittman to explain. Mauricio had a policy that you collected all data that you could at all times, and that all of that data had to be uh, processed and stored in some kind of sensible, recoverable way. And there was no excuse. I mean, this, uh, whether you were going in or out of a port or out in the middle of the ocean, you acquired all the data you possibly could at all times. And that was the key to it, really. We had an enormous data set because of that policy. It didn't any, make any difference. If you were a chief scientist to do biological work, you still you had to have the magnet, magnetometer, the depth of quarter, and the seismic reflection gear going at all times if the ship was underway. And you had to make damn sure that it was operated correctly. So... It was for that reason we had an enormous amount of data from all over the world. And, and the data was, also at his insistence, it was systematically processed and systematically stored in computers in a way that was recoverable. When seafloor spreading erupted on the scene, we had the data. And we had the data that we could pull out of the computers just like that. We could just go right to the computer, right then and there, and say, okay, let's go look at the Pacific Ocean. So he also instructed that the ship would stop at least once a day, preferably twice a day, to take a core, a, drive a pipe into the seabed and bring back 10, 15 meters of sediment. Go into the core lab, which at that time was the former the old garage of the Lamont family. We had about 3,000 cores by that time, didn't we? Right. So yeah. as the magnetic wiggles appeared, confirming that the polarity shifts of the Earth's magnetic field were imprinting a signal on the seafloor of these shifts. Updike had in place, by one of his graduate students, John Foster, a magnetometer, a, a device in which you could put rocks, little uh, cylinders of, of hard rock, and measure the remembered magnetic signature. These would usually be volcanic rocks, but we could also go to the core collection and the uh, cores had dried out, so you could cut a little cylinder out of the sediment core. And Billy Glass, uh, one of the grad students, did that to a core off Antarctica and uh, had a eureka experience like Walter's of the, the same pattern that was coming out on the seafloor was right there in the sediment cores. So if we knew the ages of the, when the minute field reversed, we had a new dating technique for all the sediments. On April 20th, 1966, Pittman was still working on his PhD, and he presented the Altan and 19 profile at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union. And there, he still heard skepticism in the halls, but it didn't last long. A year later, at the same union meeting, the scientific community had moved on from questioning the theory to opening the door to an entirely new direction of study, known as plate tectonics. Pittman likes to tell the story of a final important confirmation of his analysis of the Altana 19 profile, which was published officially in 1966 with Lamont geophysicist Jim Hertzler. The deep sea scientific drilling project was getting started in 1968, and soon scientists aboard the Glomar Challenger were taking sediment core samples in five locations where Pittman and Hertzler had estimated the ages of the seafloor using the Altana 19 profile. By examining tiny microfossils in the sediment, the scientists could determine the age of the first ooze that had covered newly erupted lava. 
Art Maxwell, co-chief scientist aboard the Glomar Challenger, radioed over to Pittman, who was on another expedition aboard Lamont's research ship, the Vima, a few miles away. Maxwell had some news, but he wanted to share it with Pittman in person. And they radioed back to each other because uh, Maxwell wanted to tell Walter how perfect his time scale was. So they arranged a rendezvous, and he went over in the lifeboat of the Vima That's right. they showed to the huge Glomar Challenger, bring, bringing a case of whiskey. <laughs> we had a gam. You know what a gam is? A gam is when you two ships meet at sea like that, and they have a little party, a get-together. So I had a gam out in the Atlantic Ocean off of Brazil, I guess it was, wasn't it? And then they returned back to the Vima loaded with frozen steak. <laughs> it was a revolution. It was a revolution. And it was successful because it was data observation driven. Yeah. The confirmation <coughs> of the wiggles on the seafloor by the same wiggles and sediment cores and that device to measure the magnetics and cores would not have been at the Mont had Neil Updike not been here. And the brilliance of his graduate student John Foster had built these, these extraordinary instruments that could measure the, the I mean, gradually, the magnetic strength in sediments is extremely weak, um, but it was absolutely faithful. Every little particle that when it landed on the floor of the ocean aligned itself like a little compass needle. You can understand why we just, when you get hooked by science, you, you, you become addicted, right? I mean, you just dive in. It's just, it's, it's so incredible. I'm sure, I'm sure that every science has these kind of moments, you know, when things click and they begin to work and you begin to be able to explain things and understand them. Gosh, you know, that's how it works. On May 23rd through 24th, scientists involved in Lamont's early discoveries around plate tectonics will be holding a symposium to mark the 50th anniversary of the discoveries that led to the confirmation of plate tectonics and the new research underway today. You can find a link to the symposium in the show notes for this episode. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.